We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again. If you are a visitor with us, let me say especially uh, welcome to you this morning and would love to meet you at a distance of six feet after we finish this sermon today, but really would like to engage you this morning. I promise to you guys that the shade up here is not that nice. I, I'm, it's not that great, actually. Um, it might look well, but it's not. In Second Samuel chapter 4, uh, we're really introduced to one of my uh, one of my favorite little small, almost... Um, sideline narratives in in the Bible through a character uh, of Mephibosheth. He plays a a short but a a significant role in the narrative. We know that after the long struggle, the treachery and the pain that David had to endure at the hands of King Saul and his men, uh, he was eventually crowned king in 2 Samuel. And once king, the, the common practice of the day, especially given David's experience of what took place before, was to, for lack of a better term, clean house, uh, to execute his former enemies to ensure the kingship going forward. The security of the kingship really required this, and it was a very common practice we see in the ancient world, but even in the narrative of the Old Testament. And at this point in the narrative, we're introduced to Mephesheth. Uh, the grandson of Saul, the son of Samuel, I mean the son of uh, Jonathan. Chapter 4, we learn that as a boy, uh, he was in an accident and became crippled in his feet, the Bible says. And being in the line of Saul, his grandson, the political and the military thing to do was to see him as a threat to David's throne. The wisdom of the day demanded his removal. But David responds in a very different way, a very interesting way. He shows him mercy and grace in the most unexpected way. David responds in verse 7 of chapter 9 this way. He says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table Always. This word kindness in that chapter shows up about five times. It's a very important word we've discussed many times. It's the steadfast love of the Lord. It's God's hesed, His covenant love. So in an act of grace-filled kindness, David restores houses and lands to Mephesheth. But David goes even further. His kindness provides him a permanent seat at the king's table. Verse 13 summarizes, ends that chapter by saying, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Instead of receiving what was deserved at this time, he received grace, he received mercy, he received steadfast love expressed in this most powerful way of being given access, a seat at the table of the king, always. 
This morning, we come to another table of another king. It too is a table of of fellowship. It too is a table of, of joy, restoration. And it too is a table solely of grace and mercy, of the steadfast love and kindness of our God. Whoever sits at this table, we're going to see in our text, does so solely because of the kindness of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. So obviously we're going to be looking at the the Passover with the disciples, the, the Last Supper, or I would argue really is the First Supper, as we'll look at. But I want to ask you this morning a reflective question to even think about as you think about taking communion, as you think about the Lord's Supper, which we did last week. What does the table represent to you? You can think about that for a moment. What does the table represent to you? I want to give you a main idea and then I want to jump into this beautiful text this morning. Mark chapter 14. And here it is. Jesus is the Passover lamb who secures our seat at His table solely by His grace and mercy in the Gospel. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He's the one who secures our seat at His table. And He does so solely by His grace and His mercy we receive in the Gospel. I'll pick up reading in Mark chapter 14. Pick up in verse 12. Read down to verse 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and the man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest house where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, He broke bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And He took a cup. When He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you that 
This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, but he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Father, we, we take this moment to hear from you. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us spiritual ears, spiritual hearts, spiritual eyes to see you, to see our Savior this morning, to recognize the beauty of the grace and the mercy of Christ. Lord, not by merit, not by any work or effort, solely by your grace we stand as forgiven, blood-bought citizens of the kingdom. And we say thank you this morning. So Lord, let us, as we dive into your text, let us see you today. Let our hearts respond by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Really, I'm just going to have two real sections of this text we'll walk through. We're going to look at the preparation of the table and the explanation of the table. So really in verses 12 through 16, I want to look at the table prepared to begin with. In his popular study, The Quest for the Historical Jesus, Albert Schweitzer eloquently laid out his misguided quote of Jesus with these words. He said, there is silence all around. The Baptist, John the Baptist, appears and cries, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that He is the coming Son of Man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and He throws Himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes Him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological, the end-time conditions, He has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward in the mangled body of the one immeasurable great man who was strong enough to think of himself as a spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. According to Schweitzer, Jesus misread things. He, he overplayed his hand. And he found himself caught in the gears of history that he couldn't get out of. <coughs> Jesus was trapped and sadly his vision of the kingdom of God was stripped away and while eloquent no doubt this quote is flat out wrong Jesus was no cog in the wheel of history and history in fact was moving by his his sovereign hand and with every step of Jesus's life he he remained in full command of his journey to the cross to execute his plan of redemption for his people and this is exactly what we find in verses 12 through 16 as, the, as he masterfully prepares the table for this most important Passover meal. The time of the Passover had arrived and as we mentioned last week, uh, this was a time of great joy as the people celebrated God's deliverance of His people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt some thousands of years prior. This week brought thousands upon thousands of worshipers into the city. Now, the historian Josephus records over 200,000 lambs being slaughtered during the time in A.D. 66. 
And it says here it's the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Mark tells us. The disciples come to Jesus uh, wanting to know where the location of this meal will take place so they might make preparations, they ask. They ask, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, if we remember back to when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, we kind of see a similar scene here. He made arrangements, as we know, and told people, gave them precise instructions regarding here the preparation of the table. Verse 13, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest house uh, where I may eat the Passover with the disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepared for us. Verse 16 provides uh, something of a summary verse here. It says, And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So to be sure, there was much the disciples had to do. They had to set the table with the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, and the sauce. They had to roast and prepare the Passover lamb, making the, the, Lord's, or the centerpiece of the Lord's salvation from Egypt. However, unknown to the disciples and even... Uh, unknown to the disciples at this time, there was an even greater preparation of an even greater Passover taking shape. Jesus, the Son of God, was preparing Himself to be sacrificed as the Passover Lamb. Remember John the Baptist's words, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. And He is the one orchestrating every event leading up to the cross, including these very preparations of this most important meal. Far from being crushed in the gears of history, Jesus is here turning history itself. Referring to Jesus' sovereign hand in preparation of these events, one pastor called them the master's mastery here. And though everything seemed to be falling apart, Jesus is in complete control. The religious leaders are pressing in on him. Judas has already really betrayed him. In fact, all the disciples will soon flee from him. He'll be arrested. He'll be falsely condemned and crucified. He will seemingly give control of his life over. And yet, we know he remains in complete control of all things. The one who is in control of the midst of what seems like everything is falling apart has to be, must be, the one that we can trust. Jesus can be trusted to sustain us and keep us when things seem bad, when things seem out of control. But now I want us to move really to the to the crux of this section from the preparation to the explanation in verse 17. And Jesus is going to take His seat in a moment as the presider over this meal to offer a rather shocking explanation of the meal itself. So we see in verses 17 through 31 where the table is going to be explained. And we see, as we've seen, we've looked at this multiple times in Mark's Gospel. He uses somewhat of a, of a sandwich style of argumentation to make his point. He does it here again. The heart of the sinner, the meat of this section, is the Passover meal in verses 20 through 22 to 25. Yet this section is strategically sandwiched on either side by betrayal. This begins with Judas in verses 17 through 21. 
But then it proceeds with the rest of the disciples who will all defect in verses 21, 27 through 31. And it's the sandwiching structure which serves to deepen the significance of Jesus' teaching on the Passover meal here. Verse 17 begins, And when it was evening, He came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray Me, one who is eating with Me. So as evening approaches, Jesus is in a large upper room with the disciples reclining at table, the common way such an intimate meal was shared. During this time, Jesus drops the bomb. He says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then he clarifies it. And he was eating with me. The divine Son of God, Jesus was very aware of what lied ahead of him and how those events would play out. He knows who will betray him. His words, though, invoke grief, sorrow, and soul-searching amongst the disciples. Verse 19 says, They began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? Jesus responds with clarifying words. Again, in verse 20, He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the, in the dish with me. Now, we know from verses 10 through 11, Judas is the culprit here. Greed is the root of his betrayal. But now in response, look down at verse 21. I want you to see these words. Jesus makes one of the most powerful and really theologically significant statements recorded in Mark's Gospel. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born at all. Jesus again identifies Himself, we've seen this multiple times, as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7. And very importantly, His self-identification as the Divine Son of Man is here linked to both His rejection and His suffering. Jesus weds Daniel's lofty, apocalyptic figure of the Son of Man to Isaiah's suffering servant of the Lord. Speaking of His rejection, Jesus says the Son of Man must go as it is written. The glorious Son of Man will be rejected and, be, and suffer as the Son, as the servant of the Lord. But notice, notice how the, the future judgment of Judas is described. It will be so horrific. It will be better if he had not even been born, the text says. In this character of Judas and in these words itself, we're confronted with the dangerous truth over and over again that revelation brings responsibility. It does. And we're also confronted with the reality with Judas that proximity to the things of God is no substitute for saving faith. Judas, to say he was next to Jesus, would be an understatement. He's literally next to Jesus right here. He's walked with Him. He's seen His work. He's seen His miracles. He's listened to His teaching. And yet, the proximity, the revelation that He had of Jesus served not for Him saving faith, but actually damnation. If you're here this morning and you maybe you grew up in church, Maybe you've been around church. Maybe 
you've participated in the activities of church your whole life, I want to remind you again that proximity to Jesus, proximity to the people of God, is no substitute for saving faith in Christ. It's different. It's a heart issue. It's a commitment of your will to the Lord Jesus. And your proximity to the things of God, void of your willingness to submit your life to Christ, actually places upon you a greater responsibility. We also find here a breathtaking and undeniable collision of two things we struggle with in the Bible. God's providence and man's responsibility. Judas's betrayal was ordained and a key part of God's plan of redemption. As it has been written, is straightforward. But in no way does this relieve Judas of his responsibility and guilt. The divine tension, this divine tension is all over the Bible. It's, it's one we must think through. It's one we must wrestle with. And it's one, yes, that shapes our theological paradigms, no doubt. But in all our thinking and wrestling in whatever paradigm we hold, we must admit and embrace this tension if we're going to remain biblical. God's providence, His sovereignty in the service of His purposes in no way cancels man's freedom and moral responsibility as we see here. Both are true. Both must be embraced to remain biblical. But the question which really jumps off the page here is the question of verse 20. Is it I? Now, of course, Judas is a specific betrayer here of Jesus, right? He is the one who will carry this betrayal sadly to the grave. But he's not the only guilty party here. By the morning, all the disciples will betray Jesus. Look at verse 26. Remember I mentioned Mark's sandwich structure here, so before we get to the meat of the Passover meal, we need to uh, set, up, set it up properly. Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written. There is that language again. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, We love Peter. Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the, the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples said the same. Jesus makes clear, betrayal falls in the lap of all the disciples. They will all defect. Even in light of their bold, confident refusal, we know how this turns out. Once the shepherd is arrested and taken, they all scatter. Peter especially. So the answer to the question of verse 20, is it I, is a resounding yes for all the disciples. Judas betrays Jesus for greed. The disciples walk away from fear and cowardice. The difference was that Judas was unwilling to soften his heart in repentance. He was zealous in his betrayal all the way to the grave. You see, the answer to this question, is it I, 
is a resounding question for all the disciples, and it's a resounding question for each of us this morning. At the heart of what it means to be a Christian is rightly answering this question, Is it I? Yes. If you can't say that, you're not a Christian this morning. Each one of us are betrayers of God because each and every one of us have sinned against Him. We've sinned against the Lord Jesus. We have betrayed Him in our sin. And we deserve the just penalty for that. And the only remedy for the cosmic betrayal of the Son of God, which we've all committed, is the grace of God, which we find in verse 22. We find it in this table of grace. So now this sacred meal is really found in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as I said, while it's, it's often it's called many things, but typically we hear it called the Last Supper, which is accurate. There's nothing wrong with that. Because it is the last meal He takes with the disciples. I, I like the idea that it's the First Supper. Because Jesus makes clear that He is inaugurating something altogether new in the Supper. This Passover meal was, said, was prepared in a, in a very certain way, with a very distinct form. The presider played an important role of instructing everyone regarding the Exodus story. This was a family meal. We learn from Exodus chapter 6. Jewish men were to get their families together. The children would be involved. They would recite lines. They would do different things. But it was a family meal. There was a specific script that was followed. And it centered on four cups of wine representing four promises made to by God in Exodus 6. The promise of rescue from Egypt. The promise of freedom from slavery. The promise of redemption by God's power. And the promise of a renewed relationship with God in the future. But Jesus, the, provide, the presider here, does something really, really unexpected. And really shocking in verse 22. He breaks script. And he does so in the, un, in the most unbelievable way. At this point in their life, the disciples had taken this meal many, many times. Any Jewish person had. They had heard the story of the Exodus. They understood the promises of God. They were familiar with the Passover. They knew the script. So you could just imagine how shocking Jesus' words would have been in verse 22. And as they were eating, it says, He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take this as my body. As a side note again. Is another one of those places in the Bible where it's absolutely absurd to think of Jesus as a simply a good moral teacher. Any teacher who took this holy meal done in remembrance of God's saving work and made it about himself was a lunatic in the strongest way. Unless it was true. Any explanation of this statement here apart from Jesus being the divine Son of God and the true Passover Lamb is pure lunacy. Notice the verbs here in verse 22. Associated with this idea of His body. We see eat, take, bless, break, give, say, take. All really indicating the gracious activity of God on behalf of the disciples. As one commentator says, all the, all the act, 
activity signified by these verbs thus results in the gift of Jesus himself, holy and without reserve, in his self-offering for the disciples. Important here, the word body used, Jesus uses here, is not the word for flesh. It's the word describing really person or being. Jesus is saying, uh, we are to feed on him by faith. He is our very substance. And then in verse 23, he says, he takes a cup. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, biblically speaking, the life of a creature resides in its blood. So, so, so Jesus' reference to the cup as my blood thus implies his very life. And it is to be poured out, the text says, speaking of his death. And this blood is said to be of the covenant, or the new covenant, which cannot be understood apart from the old. Now, covenant marks a particular relationship, a specific type of relationship. We, we speak of it in terms of marriage today. Or even at the Hill, we speak of covenant membership. A covenant forms a, a relationship between two parties. In the Bible, God's relationship to His people is expressed in covenantal terms from the very early pages of the Bible. It's a relationship requiring a specific oath, a relationship of obligation between God and His people. It's like signing a, a contract. And this covenant was established and sealed, as we know in the Old Testament, by the, the shedding of blood, the killing of an animal. But Jesus here speaks of a new covenant. It's a covenant between God and His people. It's a relationship of obligation as well. And it's a relationship sealed by blood. But not the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. It's sealed by the blood of Christ. When Jesus lifts this cup and speaks these words, He speaks of His substitutionary sacrifice upon the cross where His blood would be spilled, establishing this new relationship between God and man, ensuring it and grounding it. This is why Jesus came. This was God's plan from eternity, to send His Son to accomplish our salvation, something we could never do, to ensure and maintain a relationship with God that we could not. He came to establish and secure our relationship with God. The prophets testify to this. I want to read it again, but I read Jeremiah 31 to open our sermon. Listen to the words. Bring them into the context of Jesus saying here, lifting up the cup. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah says, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. The least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. How is all that going to happen? I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. This new covenant, which the prophets spoke of, Jesus is saying, I'm fulfilling it. I'm bringing it. I'm inaugurating it by the shedding of my blood. 
It's a covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, offering the forgiveness of sins. Remember Jesus' words, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, the Son of Man, Jesus speaking, speaking of himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to what? And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' words here, after they all drank from the cup, are essential. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Who are the many? All who receive him by faith. All who believe in his person and work. All who embrace his suffering and his sacrifice. His substitutionary work on the cross. All who are covered by his blood. All who eat and drink of him by faith. Notice the greatest promise. Which accompanies this in verse 25. Jesus brings this meal to a close. Remember there would be four cups of wine here. And most believe that Jesus refused to drink the fourth cup here. It's the cup of consummation and the life in the promised land with God. For that cup of blessing, Jesus would await. He would not drink now. And he says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This focus here shifts from the celebration of the origin of this new covenant to its final fulfillment. Until that day speaks of that great day when Christ's kingdom will be fully and finally realized. I want to give us three applications now as we think about the Last Supper, the First Supper, as it relates to who we are as believers, as it relates to when we take the Supper and what it means for us. Go back to that question I asked you at the beginning, and I want to provide you three things that at least it means. So, what does the table of the Lord mean? It means this, first. It means that it's all of grace. Christianity is not a table of merit. It's a table of grace. Solely by the benefits of Christ's perfect substitutionary sacrifice, suffering our behalf, did any of us gain access to His table, to His kingdom. Period. None of your works of righteousness, none of your prayers, none of your taking of the cup itself provide you access to the kingdom. It's solely by His grace, solely by His mercy alone, by His work that He accomplished on our behalf, when we place faith in Him, are we brought to the table. It's all of grace. Secondly, it's a table for siblings. Remember the Passover meal was a family meal. One writer said, thinking of this text, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income, common levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or any other sort. Christians come together because they are saved by Jesus Christ. That's it. Every time we take of the Lord's Supper, we do so as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a meal of grace. It's a meal of siblings. Thirdly, the supper points to our definite future. The table ensures ensures us that another table awaits us in the kingdom. The table assures us that we have a seat 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you know Christ, if you've trusted in Him, if you've placed faith in Him, every time we take the, the cup and we take the bread, we do this as a declaration, yes, of His work on our behalf. But we do this with a declaration of our hope that my seat at this table here on earth points to the fact that I have a seat in the kingdom that awaits me. That each one of us will sit at. Like Mephibosheth, we are all helpless and lame due to sin. We all deserve removal. We're all enemies of the King. Each one of us come apart from Christ as enemies of the King, as rebels to His kingdom, as danger to His future reign. But though we are lame due to our sin, we are carried by His grace to the table of the Lord Jesus. There, and only there, do we find a feast which truly sustains and satisfies the sinner. I want to read I want to read a few lyrics to a song I like. The title is Carried to the Table. It's based off the text of Second Samuel, but obviously based off the text of Second Samuel fulfilled in Christ. And here's the words. It says wounded and forsaken I was shattered by the fall. Broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone. Summoned by the King into the Master's court. Lifted by the Savior and cradled in His arms. I was carried to the table, seated where I don't belong. Carried to the table, swept away by His love. I don't see my brokenness anymore when I'm seated at the table of the Lord. I'm carried to the table, the table of the Lord fighting thoughts of fear and wondering why He called my name. Am I good enough to share this cup? This world has left me lame. Even in my weakness, the Savior called my name. In His holy presence, I'm healed. And I'm unashamed. You carried me, my God. You carried me to the table. So as we... In this sermon, I, I want to speak to two people here this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to be what the Bible teaches. You cannot earn a place at the table. No matter of your effort, no matter of your works, no matter of your religious practice, no matter of you just getting close to Christians, proximity won't get you there. You need the work of the King on your behalf. You need to understand the work of the Passover Lamb Christ. That the relationship between God and you that you need, you cannot uphold in your own works. But Christ has accomplished what's necessary through the shedding of His blood upon the cross. You must admit you are a sinner. That you are 
that you are a betrayer of God because of your sin. And cry out to Him for His grace and His mercy. And allow Him to carry you to the table. And you can do that this morning. Not by merit, but by grace is the Christian faith. But for us as Christians, I I want us to think at least three things this morning that we all struggle with and what it teaches us in the table. First, humility. To be a Christian and to not be marked by humility is, it's impossible. We recognize that our only place at the table came by His work on our behalf, by His grace. We must have a posture of humility. We're weak, humble, broken sinners that have been made citizens of His kingdom. Does it produce humility and does it also produce solidarity in us with brothers and sisters in Christ? That we too share in this life together. Not by my efforts, not by your efforts, by the efforts of Christ. And thirdly, it should produce in us confidence as believers. We should be confident people because of Christ's work. Because the fact that He will, again, eat and drink anew with us in His kingdom. He's accomplished what's necessary. He'll get us there. And we will partake with Him. We walk with confidence. Pride and arrogance should be no place in the Christian. Every, everything of pride and arrogance should fall to the ground when we think about the table of the Lord. How we've been brought to it. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the one who secures our seat at His table solely by His grace and mercy in the gospel. So I want to pray for us as we end our time and as we sing our final song, but I do want to give us all a time to reflect and pray. Respond. You don't know Christ this morning if you're thinking that Christianity is about an effort that I have to do, a righteousness that I have to work up, rules that I have to keep in order to earn a place at the table. I want you to know you're mistaken this morning, first. But you're given the opportunity this morning to respond to Christ. To speak to Him, to respond to Him by faith, to repent of your sins, to ask for forgiveness of your sin, and to ask Him to save you by His grace and His mercy. Your call upon Him this morning. And for us as Christians, as we look at this text, we, we all have things in our heart we need to dig down and pull out. Pride and arrogance sinks deep into our heart. And we need to consider again the table of the Lord. What He's accomplished for us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for this morning. Lord, I thank You for the gift of brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank You for the gift of Your Word. Holy Spirit, thank You for guiding us in it. Lord, for anyone this morning who doesn't know You, Lord, might they not leave with more access and 
greater revelation of who you are? By the simple preaching of the Word, by the simple being here with the saints, but not understand the responsibility that comes with that. That they've heard the Gospel this morning. They've heard the clarity of what the text says. They've seen in the text that no one, the disciples especially, they all betrayed Jesus. But yet Jesus offers them His very life in, the, in, his, in His covenant. Through His grace and His mercy as He does all of us. So Lord, anyone who doesn't know you this morning, I pray that you would press upon them Reveal to them their sin this morning. Help them to see with clarity their need for you and help them to see with clarity the grace and mercy of Christ has been accomplished for them. That they might turn to you this morning. But Lord, for us as believers, Lord, soften our hearts. Remind us, Lord, of our pride, of our arrogance. Remind us, Lord, that You tell us very simply that we're often blind to our sin. That's a reality for us until the day we die. But by Your grace, might You show us our sin this morning. Lord, that we might lay it at Your feet this morning and grab hold with confidence the grace that You've already accomplished for us again and again. Lord, we thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for Your work in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.